This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good morning. Currently, of course, we are in the midst of the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, uh, a conflict that began in 1861 uh, and completed in 1865, uh, and of course tore the country apart. Uh, now, obviously, a lot uh, prior to 1861, uh, you know, brought to bear this particular conflict. Uh, and depending, of course, on who you read, uh, it dates back past to the American Revolution, and if not before. Uh, so we're going to be joined uh, by Tony Horwitz in a second. But, of course, I wanted to say thank you again so much uh, to the Liberal Arts Department, uh, to the students for attending, uh, and, of course, to Dr. Jenkins uh, and Dean Franzek as well. Uh, Tony Horwitz uh, is a native uh, of Washington, D.C., uh, and a graduate of Brown University and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Uh, he's worked for many years as a reporter uh, and has written extensively on a number of subjects, not only Confederates in the Attic, but, of course, uh, more recently, uh, his work on John Brown. Uh, copies, of course, as Dr. Troy Swanson mentioned, uh, are available uh, in the back, and there will be signings later. Thank you so much, and without further ado, Tony Horwitz. Up in a pulpit here. Um, thank you for that introduction and to all of you for coming out and to liberal arts and any other department involved in this. This is a, a, a treat to be here. Um, now, I was told that some of you have read Confederates in the Attic. Uh, I'm actually not going to talk about that in my sort of uh, remarks here uh, um, uh, this morning um, because most of what I have to say is actually in the book. Um, but I'm going to be relatively brief so that we have a long question and answer period, and I'm happy to talk about that then uh, or anything else. So uh, please don't be shy uh, when I'm done with questions, comments, abuse, whatever. Um, so, uh, and I've I brought some pictures, and maybe we can turn down the lights a little bit, uh, so long as that's not going to put people to sleep um, before my remarks do. Um, this is Harper's Ferry, uh, by the way. Um, and uh, those of you who have read Confederates in the Attic uh, may remember that I go on a um, rather madcap uh, pilgrimage uh, with this fellow, Robert Lee Hodge. Um, uh, who is uh, famous for uh, mimicking uh, dead bodies on the battlefield um, uh, from the Civil War. Uh, he's about as realistic a, a dead person as you can be for someone in the prime of life. Um, and one of the places we went on what he called our Civil Wargasm uh, was Harper's Ferry. And uh, I described it in that book as a uh, sort of spooky, uh, history-haunted place um, uh, that where you can really feel uh, the presence of John Brown. Um, and that was one reason I was uh, drawn to this subject of John Brown and his raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, you know, it's really uh, my kind of town, and it's uh, a place where strange things still happen. Um, on my first uh, research trip there for this book, Midnight Rising, um, I uh, was on my way to the archives when a ranger stopped me and said, uh, by the way, there's a John Brown beard growing contest in progress up the street. Uh, not a fast paced spectator sport, uh, but still kind of uh, intriguing. Uh, 
Um, this, by the way, is a, a reenactment of John Brown's hanging that I attended. Um, and on the left is a picture from the John Brown Wax Museum, uh, where you can learn all kinds of uh, history that never happened. Uh, so Harper's Ferry is this wonderful mix of actual and sort of imagined history. And if you haven't been there, I, I really recommend that you go. Um, but, you know, as I began to research it a bit, uh, I think uh, one thing that really drew me to this subject, uh, my wife calls me a Civil War bore. Um, and I think like most Civil War bores, I've always focused on the 1861 to 65 period, you know, the great battles and leaders. Um, but I don't think we often enough step back and ask ourselves how and why did Americans, uh, who for the most part shared uh, a common language, religion, culture, and history, come to slaughter each other by the hundreds of thousands in the 1860s. We don't ask the, the big questions, really, before we get into the war itself. I'm speaking here about Civil War buffs, not about what you do in the classroom. And I realized I really didn't know much about that story, despite being a sort of Civil War nerd since early boyhood. Um, and I think John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859, 18 months before the beginning of the Civil War, is, is really a way to explore that question. And I was also drawn to this topic because the protagonist, uh, John Brown, is such a compelling figure and very different from the way that I think most Americans imagine him. Uh, in art and lore, He's typically depicted as a, a wild-eyed, wild-haired fanatic, uh, possibly insane, uh, with a rifle in one hand and a Bible in the other, uh, as shown here in a famous mural that's in the Kansas uh, State House. Uh, but this image isn't really true to the real John Brown, uh, beginning actually with his appearance. Uh, for most of his life, uh, John Brown was actually a clean-shaven, well-groomed uh, American striver and family man who favored uh, starched white shirts and uh, dark suits and took business trips to Europe. Not your image of a, a radical insurrectionist. Um, he also, well, I should mention, he didn't grow that famous scary beard of his until the last 18 months of his life uh, when he was living underground and needed to disguise his identity. Uh, he also really had a, a classically American background, not unlike that of Abraham Lincoln, who was a contemporary whose life uh, ultimately intersects with Brown's, and I'll talk about that later. Um, he's born in Connecticut in 1800 to old Yankee farming stock, but like Lincoln, he's raised on what was then the frontier, in his case, northeastern Ohio. He's educated at a log schoolhouse, has a strict uh, Calvinist upbringing like Lincoln's, goes to work young, um, and for the first few decades of his life, this future revolutionary uh, is really something of a conformist. He uh, adopts his uh, father's uh, religious beliefs uh, almost exactly. Uh, he adopts his father's uh, trade of leather tanning, um, and he marries young, um, at an early age, uh, at his father's prompting, uh, to a woman that John Brown describes as remarkably plain, but industrious and economical, 
of excellent character, earnest piety, and good practical sense. Uh, very romantic words there. Uh, I don't know about the other husbands in the audience, but if I said that about my wife, I would be sleeping on the couch. Um, he's also this um, tremendously ambitious man who does things on a big scale throughout his life. Uh, beginning with family, he will ultimately father 20 children. Uh, and, yeah, I complain about two. Um, and uh, in the entrepreneurial spirit of the age of Jackson, the 1830s, um, uh, he tries to get rich. He gives up farming and tanning, begins speculating on land, borrowing money to buy property, borrowing more until this property boom goes bust. Uh, he was speculating along a canal route in Ohio. That's why I have this picture here. Uh, in the financial panic of 1837, which was a little bit like what America went through in 2008. And Brown, uh, like thousands of other Americans, is driven into bankruptcy. Uh, and this um, uh, destitute family also endures repeated tragedies. Uh, Brown's first wife dies young in childbirth, uh, as his own mother had done uh, when he was only eight. Uh, and of those 20 children he fathers uh, by two wives, uh, he will bury nine of them before they reach the age of 10. This is one of many things uh, I think we should remember, any of us who romanticized the 19th century, about a third of, of children in the first half of the 19th century did not make it to adulthood. So losing children was just... Uh, and almost an everyday occurrence to the point where they recycled the names of the dead children. Uh, Brown loses uh, uh, children named Sarah, John, Elizabeth. I can't remember all of them. He loses so many, and they actually recycle those names. He has later children with the same name. So I think it's important to remember that uh, about this era. Uh, but he battles back from these losses and from bankruptcy in his 40s to become a prominent wool merchant, only to once again overreach and go bust yet again. Brown is an ambitious, talented man, uh, but he's terrible at managing money. Uh, so this uh, very self-confident, ambitious guy enters his 50s really as a failure, uh, barely able to support um, this uh, uh, family that's been through so much hardship and loss. Uh, this, by the way, is a picture of his second wife, Mary, and uh, two of uh, their young daughters uh, about the time he goes bust a second time. I think it's fair to say they don't look terribly happy. Um, but this is uh, perhaps what I find most remarkable about John Brown. Uh, I think most of us would be crushed by the kind of setbacks he endured. Uh, but he has this burning passion uh, this unbending conviction that sustains him through all his Job-like trials. Um, he's descended from Puritans and Revolutionary War officers and believes that America's founding destiny of liberty and equality can only be fulfilled through the destruction of slavery. And he believes it's his God-given mission to do the job. And he clings to this belief for decades, quietly laying the groundwork until in his mid-50s, this penniless nobody uh, explodes onto the national scene as the nation's leading anti-slavery warrior. 
Uh, there's a lot that's very troubling about this man, uh, his violence. Um, he's almost an Ahab figure for any of you who are reading Moby Dick in your classes. Uh, his white whale is the destruction of slavery, and he will take everyone down with him if necessary to achieve that. Uh, but I have to say, while researching this book and also uh, entering my 50s like Brown, uh, I'm very struck by this man's resilience and his capacity to remake himself at what was then considered an advanced age. Uh, in his 50s, he's often referred to as the old man or old brown, and his willingness to take on the great moral issue of his day, despite all his worldly travails. Uh, in some ways, it's a, it's a very American story and uh, a somewhat inspiring one. He forces you to think about your own life and what's possible. Um, but Brown's militant abolitionism doesn't just sort of appear out of nowhere. Uh, he's radicalized by his times, and I think this is another aspect of his story in the nations that's uh, often misunderstood. Uh, largely because of Gone with the Wind, from which I've uh, taken this picture of Tara. Does anybody under the age of 40 still watch Gone with the Wind? How many people have seen Gone with the Wind? Okay, well, you know, you're, you're roughly familiar with it. Well, because of this romantic novel and movie, not just that, but I think it contributed to it, I think many Americans still look back at the pre-Civil War South uh, as a doomed society, uh, feudal and agrarian, this kind of world apart from the rest of the nation that was destined to be swept away uh, in a modernizing, industrializing world. And because we look back at the Old South uh, through the prism of its defeat in the Civil War, it has this aura of underdog and lost cause. Um, but to uh, Americans before the Civil War, who obviously couldn't see the future, uh, things looked altogether different. The South didn't seem an underdog. In many ways, it was the top dog. Uh, the South uh, controlled the White House, the Supreme Court, and leadership posts in Congress for almost the entire era between the nation's founding uh, and the Civil War. Uh, economically, uh, slave-grown cotton isn't uh, withering away. Uh, it's booming, an engine of the national and global economy. By the 1850s, it accounts for three-quarters of the nation's exports. And this isn't just uh, a factor in the South. Uh, the whole nation is complicit in this. Uh, northern textile mills, northern traders, northern banks are all part of this great system that's built on slave labor. And slaves themselves are a commodity as well. Uh, one economist has calculated that the value of um, the four million slaves in the Civil War in the, uh, in the 1850s uh, was equal, was actually greater than all the nation's industries, railroads, and banks combined. Um, and this not only gave uh, the South or uh, certain uh, people in the South tremendous wealth and power, but also this great confidence. Uh, even though the North has uh, most of the nation's cities and population and industry, it's the South that seems the brasher region. Uh, as a South Carolina congressman famously boasts in 1858, cotton is king 
and no one dare defy it. And John Brown does, and that's what ultimately makes him so potent. Uh, abolitionism is a tiny movement uh, in this country before the Civil War, and most abolitionists are staunch pacifists. They believe that violence, even in the cause of liberating slaves, only uh, repeats the sins of slave drivers and that the way to oppose this institution is through education and Christian uplift. Brown derides this as what he calls milk and water abolitionism. To him, slavery is a state of war and must be met in kind. And he does so first in Kansas, which in the uh, mid-1850s is really the front line um, uh, in the conflict over whether slavery will extend to new Western territories. Uh, and when Brown and his uh, grown sons arrive there, uh, Brown, as usual, has 60 cents to his name, uh, pro-slavery forces really have the upper hand. Uh, they're bullying and sometimes killing northern settlers who want Kansas to enter the Union as a free state. Uh, Brown and his allies start punching back hard, bloody attacks, uh, on slaveholders, they cross into Missouri, um, uh, capture slaves at gunpoint, uh, and escort them to freedom uh, in Canada. And this really makes Brown a national celebrity, um, uh, admired by many in the North, but hated in the White South. And I should add, uh, since we're talking about the Civil War uh, uh, sesquicentennial, uh, that five years before the first battle of Manassas in the Civil War, you have Northerners and Southerners uh, killing each other over slavery uh, in Kansas, often with musket and cannon in open field battle. So I think, uh, uh, as some historians have argued, these are really the opening shots of the Civil War. Uh, but Brown, as always, is thinking big. Um, he wants to take his crusade into Africa. That's his code for the slaveholding South. He wants to take a guerrilla army uh, through the mountains from Pennsylvania into Virginia, seize the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, which has 100,000 guns, uh, free and armed slaves, and begin a rolling campaign of liberation uh, that will topple the institution of slavery. And he's going to use his Kansas fame to raise money and guns uh, for this camp, uh, crusade of his. So he goes east uh, from Kansas in full uh, freedom fighter persona and really wows the rather genteel abolitionists of New England uh, who are intoxicated by this um, rugged frontier warrior arriving uh, you know, from Kansas. Uh, some in the audience may be old enough to remember the 1960s when uh, wealthy New Yorkers uh, hosted Black Panthers. It was a little like that, an early uh, example of radical chic. Uh, Brown is uh, feted at uh, uh, salons and lecture halls uh, across New England. Uh, he dines with uh, Henry David Thoreau, shown at left, and uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, another transcendentalist calls Brown the manliest man I've ever met. Um, a Boston hostess writes about what she calls his moral magnetism, 
his ability to stir the conscience of wealthy uh, liberals and get them to give to his cause, even though he's very vague about what he intends. Um, and the six men shown at the right are uh, known as the Secret Six. These became Brown's uh, innermost core of supporters, funneling him money, money and guns in the lead up to his raid on Harper's Ferry. And uh, they're really a fascinating group. Uh, the guys uh, at the top with those kind of fire hazard beards uh, are two of the wealthiest men of their day, prominent businessmen. Um, the other four are all Harvard men, well-known reformers, orators, ministers. Uh, they really have almost nothing in common with Brown apart from their deep hatred of slavery. Um, just as an aside, uh, several of them also seem to have had uh, very difficult marriages. Uh, at the lower left is Theodore Parker, uh, a famous uh, Boston minister and orator who gave us the phrase, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, a phrase often uh, incorrectly attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. In his private writings, uh, his thoughts could be a little less lofty. Uh, he kept a diary, and at one point he breaks into Greek, and what he had actually written was, my wife is the devil, and I can't live with it anymore. Um, to his right is another bad husband, uh, Samuel Gridley Howe. Uh, he was married to uh, Julia Ward Howe, a famous poet who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Um, so I was interested in going through her other writings and found a very depressing couplet she wrote about her wedding in which she said, Hope died as I was led unto my marriage bed. <sighs> anyway, that's a little bit of what's happening uh, behind the scenes. Um, but there are also scores of uh, young people who are prepared to fight alongside Brown on the front lines. He is not a lone gunman. This is a full-blown conspiracy. Um, and the men who join him, first in Kansas and later in Virginia, and this is just eight of them, there are many more, these guys are not uh, cult followers or suicidal zealots uh, in the way that, for instance, we look at the 9-11 bombers. Um, uh, they were really a cross-section of American society at the time. Farmers, factory workers, immigrant shopkeepers, bad poets, uh, free blacks, and fugitive slaves who shared Brown's militant commitment to overthrowing slavery, but were otherwise entirely unlike him. None of them shared his strict religious beliefs. And as you can see, they were very young. He's in his late 50s. Almost all these guys were in their early 20s. And like young men of Every era, <clears throat> uh, they misbehave, uh, take risks, and spend a lot of time courting women. Uh, these guys are risking their lives to free four million slaves and save the soul of the nation. And they are working that line hard with the girls. Uh, I didn't expect to find a lot of romance in this story, but I was pleasantly surprised by all the uh, love letters I found in the archives. Uh, there were also women in Brown's band. Uh, in the summer of 1859, 
um, uh, under an assumed name, Brown uh, rents a secluded farmhouse in the hills of Maryland near Harper's Ferry, where he begins um, uh, gathering his weapons and men uh, and preparing his attack. And he's joined there by his uh, uh, daughter-in-law, Martha, and daughter, Annie, who are really there to act as camouflage and lookouts for this guerrilla band. Um, if a neighbor or passerby becomes curious about all the strange comings and goings at this farmhouse that summer, Annie uh, rushes um, into the yard or onto the porch um, to play the part of ordinary farm woman uh, while the guerrilla fighters huddle out of sight in the farmhouse attic. Uh, and I think Annie is really my, my favorite character in, in this book. Um, she's a provincial young farm woman from upstate New York, where Brown has settled this family, um, who is, uh, who really writes, you know, wonderful letters about this exotic southern summer. Uh, by the way, uh, many of those papers are in the Chicago Historical Society, where I went to um, uh, look at them. Uh, she writes about the fireflies. Um, sleeping on a straw mat in this mountain hideout, and the thrill and terror of concealing these dashing young fighters, uh, one of whom becomes her first lover. Um, now, I don't want to suggest by that that all is, you know, therefore fun and games at this uh, young summer camp in Maryland. Uh, it's not. It's hot. It's tense. It's crowded. Brown, as usual, has run through all his money. And there is the constant risk of exposure, uh, particularly when the five black men in Brown's band arrive um, in Maryland, which was then a slave state. Uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about one of them shown here, Dangerfield Newby. He's born a slave in Virginia, but in the late 1850s is freed when his owner moves to Ohio. But his wife and children are still in bondage in Virginia and he is desperate to free them. Uh, he works very hard and saves an extraordinary amount of money for a former slave. He has certificates of deposits in Ohio banks so that he can buy his family's freedom, uh, but their owner keeps raising the price and refusing to sell. And this leads to a, a, a really wrenching series of letters to Dangerfield from his wife, Harriet who fears uh, she's going to be sold to a gang labor plantation in the Deep South, which was a common fate for Virginia slaves in that era. And I'll just read you a few lines from uh, one of her letters. Oh, dear Dangerfield, come this fall without fail, money or money or no money. If you do not get me, somebody else will, and then all my bright hopes for the future are blasted. If I thought I should never see you again, this earth would have no charms for me. Do all you can for me, which I have no doubt you will. Your affectionate wife, Harriet. Uh, Dangerfield heeds this plea, leaves Ohio, and joins Brown's guerrilla band uh, in Maryland. And then finally, late one night in October 1859, Brown leads his guerrilla army uh, across this bridge over the Potomac River from uh, Maryland into Virginia, uh, attacking Harper's Ferry and seizing uh, its federal army uh, and sparking a, a vicious street fight in which the first of his men hit is Dangerfield Newby, 
shot dead in the street, uh, 50 miles short of his goal of rescuing Harriet, uh, who is then sold to a sugar plantation in Louisiana. So there is a tremendous amount at stake uh, individually and collectively for everyone drawn into this uh, story. And I'm not going to tell you the rest of it uh, here this morning, the raid and the court and prison drama that follow. Um, I want you to read my book. But I will just say a, a little bit about what happens. Um, initially, Brown succeeds in this rather wild scheme of his. He takes the town by surprise, seizes the armory, uh, begins uh, freeing blacks from uh, slaves from surrounding plantations um, and takes a number of uh, whites hostage. Um, and then he does something kind of interesting. This all happens in the middle of the night. Uh, Harper's Ferry is a railroad hub. A, a train comes in in the night. And after holding it for a while, he decides to let it go on its way to Baltimore, using those aboard essentially as passenger pigeons to spread word of what's happening in Harper's Ferry. Uh, this man has, uh, you know, uh, some things he does well and others not. He has a very keen sense of public relations and propaganda. Um, and he does so at an interesting moment uh, in American communications. The telegraph is a recent invention. Unlike our own era, newspapers and newswires are exploding. Uh, so this becomes really one of the first breaking news stories in American history. And correspondents rush to the scene, filing these breathless dispatches. Um, and as you can see from these uh, headlines, uh, wildly inaccurate, as the first days of reports often are, speaking as a journalist. Um, uh, you know, the first day story about a 9-11 or, 11 or a, a John Brown's raid, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, wild inaccuracies. Uh, and this really hits the nation. Uh, it's an earthquake jolt. Again, not unlike what 9-11 was for us. Uh, a biracial band of abolitionists, 19 men, launching a suicide strike on a symbol of American power uh, just 60 miles from the Capitol. Uh, this is just an enormous shock, and that's uh, precisely what John Brown intended. Uh, militarily, things don't go quite as well. Uh, Brown's men are inexperienced. There are no silencers in 1859. And uh, when a few of uh, Brown's men skittishly uh, fire their guns in the night, Virginians begin to wake up to this invasion uh, of their town and uh, start to oppose him and bottle him up uh, inside uh, the armory that he seized. And at this point, John Brown's raid uh, becomes a little bit like uh, a bank heist gone bad, where the robbers are stuck inside the bank with their hostages and have to either negotiate or shoot their way out, uh, except uh, this wasn't a bank building. It was this uh, building at lower left, um, the armory engine house that became known as John Brown's uh, fort. And meanwhile, on the way are U.S. Marines under the command of a colonel named Robert E. Lee, a name I hope is familiar to some of you, uh, shown at left, and Jeb Stort, his lieutenant at right, uh, both of them shown before the Civil War without their beards. Uh, later, uh, Stonewall Jackson will appear on the scene, um, although he wasn't yet known as Stonewall. 
at the upper left is John Wilkes Booth, who is also present, um, hates everything Brown stands for, uh, but will take inspiration from his uh, individual act of political violence. And meanwhile, in Washington, uh, Jefferson Davis, with the weird chin beard at bottom, uh, is leading the charge to investigate this insurrection and bring the perpetrators to justice. So Harper's Ferry is it's almost a casting call for the Confederacy 18 months before the Civil War. Uh, another uh, Civil War figure who uh, is uh, embroiled in this is uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, shown at left, he didn't grow his beard uh, until the presidential campaign. Um, and actually, John Brown's raid occurs during that campaign. Uh, and everyone has to take a position. Again, it was like the 9-11 of its day. You know, what is your policy towards terrorists, et cetera? Um, and one of the interesting things about looking at Lincoln uh, through the prism of these events is that where you stood on John Brown was really a marker of where you stood vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis slavery. And Lincoln, who many of us think of as the great emancipator, actually begins very much on the conservative end of anti-slavery opinion. Um, uh, he criticizes John Brown. He says, uh, the Republican Party, we're not about, different Republican Party in those days, uh, we're not about interfering uh, with slavery in the South. Um, he hates slavery, but he thinks it should be left alone where it is. It will wither away. Uh, he says it might take a century. Um, and he shares really the white supremacist views of, of many of his countrymen. Um, he thinks that freed uh, blacks should be resettled in Africa and Central America because they can never live as equals to whites in this country. Um, and I argue uh, in the book that Lincoln would not have been elected president had it not been for John Brown's raid. Uh, but what's fascinating about looking at Lincoln uh, in this context um, is how different he is uh, from John Brown. Uh, Brown's uh, great strength, but also his weakness, is that he never questions himself. He never has any self-doubt. He's utterly staunch from beginning to end. Uh, Lincoln is an entirely different man. He does question himself. He changes his views. He evolves. He compromises something we don't value very much anymore. Uh, so that in the end, this man who begins as a critic of John Brown uh, ends up fulfilling Brown's mission with the Emancipation Proclamation. So these two men who begin poles apart ultimately intersect and both, play the, and both pay the price. Um, Brown's raid and Lincoln's assassination by uh, John Wilkes Booth are really the bookends of this six-year national bloodletting over slavery. Um, now, I usually like to do a little reading, but I, how are we for time? I want to leave lots for questions. Uh, little short reading? Okay. Um, I had an almost embarrassment of riches uh, with my research in that everybody of this day had to write or say something about John Brown. So you have... Uh, Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Herman Melville, Walt Whitman, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass. You have all these fabulous um, writers and orators to draw from. 
But I thought I'd give you a little sense of John Brown's words, um, because he's also uh, quite a remarkable speaker. And uh, the passage I'm going to read uh, requires a little bit of a spoiler alert. John Brown's raid fails, for anyone who didn't know that. Um, he is uh, wounded and captured and put on trial. Um, and for most of the trial, he's, he's badly wounded. He's actually on a cot in the courtroom. And I have a picture of this. It's a little hard to see. But if you look there, you can uh, see it. There's a man lying on a cot. That's John Brown. Um, anyway, I'm going to read you a, a passage that occurs a, a few days after his conviction. Brown was, well, was now well enough to walk, though with difficulty, and during the court session that day, he sat instead of lying on a cot. It was late, and the gaslights gave an almost deathly pallor to his face, one reporter wrote. He was like a block of stone. Brown remained impassive as the judge denied a defense motion seeking to overturn his verdict. Then the court clerk told Brown to rise and asked him if he had anything to say why sentence should not be passed upon him. This caught Brown off guard. He'd expected to be sentenced with the other prisoners once they'd all been convicted. He seemed to be totally unprepared to speak at this time, one reporter wrote. But Brown recovered very quickly. Leaning slightly forward and resting his hands on a table, he spoke in a clear, distinct voice. I have, may it please the court, a few words to say. In the first place, I deny everything but what I have all along admitted of a design on my part to free slaves. I intended certainly to have made a clean thing of that matter, as I did when I went into Missouri and there took slaves without the snapping of a gun on either side, moving them through the country to freedom in Canada. I designed to have done the same thing again on a larger scale. That was all I intended. This summary wasn't altogether accurate. In Missouri, one of Brown's men had shot a slaveholder dead, and the attack on Harper's Ferry was clearly intended as more than a large-scale reprise of his slave rescue. Brown later admitted as much in a letter telling the prosecutor that he misspoke in court in the hurry of the moment. But the point was legally moot. As he continued speaking in court, Brown no longer sought to question the prosecution's case. He declared himself entirely satisfied with his treatment and praised the truthfulness and candor of the witnesses. What he challenged was the very basis of his indictment. Why was it a crime to try to free slaves? Had I interfered in the manner which I admit, and which I admit has been fairly proved, had I so interfered in behalf of the rich, the powerful, the intelligent, the so-called great, or in behalf of any of their friends, and suffered and sacrificed what I have in this interference, it would have been all right. Every man in this court would have deemed it an act worthy of reward rather than punishment. Brown accepted his conviction under Virginia law, but he invoked another higher code. This court acknowledges, as I suppose, the validity of the law of God. I see a book kissed here, which I suppose to be the Bible. That teaches me that all things whatsoever I would men do to me I should do to them. It teaches me further to remember them that are in bonds as bound with me. I endeavored to act up to these instructions. He had, in short, abided by the golden rule and the scriptural injunction to care for the afflicted. That was all he had done. To do otherwise would have been a much greater crime. 
I believe that to have interfered as I have done, as I have always freely admitted I have done, in behalf of his despised poor, was no wrong but right. This brought Brown to the climax of his speech, in effect to the climax of his long struggle against slavery. Now, if it is deemed necessary that I should forfeit my life for the furtherance of the ends of justice and mingle my blood with the blood of my children and with the blood of millions in this slave country whose rights are disregarded by wicked, cruel, and unjust enactments, I submit, so let it be done. Pretty good with no notes, no teleprompter, not expecting to speak. I wish... Uh, people spoke like that today. Anyway, that's, uh, I, I, at this point, I'd love to open it up and hear from you. So really, just uh, fire away. And I'll, I'll repeat the questions in case anyone can't hear them. And feel free to ask about other books or writing or anything you like. So thanks for listening. Someone over here, thank God. Hi. I, I teach women's literature, and I was wondering if you could speak to the women that um, are part of the anti-slavery societies. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Thoreau and Emerson, but the women right. in their lives were the ones that actually pushed them to abolition. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's one of the things that was fun for me about writing this book. There's, you know, there's been a lot written about John Brown over the years, but frankly, it's tended to be written by kind of older white males of a different generation. Um, and I was quite startled in the way they neglected, for instance, Annie Brown, who I talked about, whose letters are sitting there in the Chicago Historical Society. And she might get one little quote in some of the earlier books, but... Um, so there are, you know, a lot of very vivid uh, uh, women in this story. I'll mention a couple. Harriet Tubman. Um, one of the many things that makes Brown unusual is his attitude towards African-Americans. Uh, even uh, anti-slavery whites of this period, uh, you know, are very condescending towards blacks and really hold what we would regard today as white supremacist views. Uh, they think uh, blacks are racially inferior and too docile to fight for their own freedom. Sort of, you know, leave it to us white people to sort this out. Um, Brown is, is very different. Um, he not only believes that uh, uh, blacks are his equals and deserve equal rights, but he feels it's a moral imperative and a practical necessity that blacks and whites fight together to overthrow slavery. So very early on, he is courting black support from Frederick Douglass, um, but also from Harriet Tubman. And he writes about her. He's, he's just a huge admirer of her. Um, and uh, although rather sexist, he, he refers to her as he, as a mark of respect. Um, describes Tubman at one point as he is, you know, the most of a man I've ever met. And that's meant to be an admiring comment. Um, and so there are a, a number of other, you know, women involved in this story. Uh, as you mentioned, often the wives are, are pushing their husbands um, the hardest. And really the women's movement or the nascent women's movement and abolitionism are closely connected. They're really both emerging in this period. And one of the reasons I, I love this year, more sort of a little earlier, the 1830s and 40s, it's a little like the 1960s. 
It's, it's a very uh, experimental period. It's where people are speaking out, trying new things, some of them political and others just kind of weird. You know, uh, you get all kinds of strange movements around food and diet. Um, uh, I talk in the book about Sylvester Graham. Some of you may be familiar with graham crackers. I'm here to tell you uh, their origin is that Sylvester Graham thought that eating these dry, dusty crackers, I don't think they had sugar in those days, would curb lust and masturbation. And that's why you should eat them. Um, so you have all these kind of really far out ideas floating around in the atmosphere. I don't mean to diminish your and, and women's rights is a is a big part of that. Yeah, uh, right here. Uh, yes, I just wanted to say that uh, in my anthropology class, we have to read Confederates in the Attic. And how would you feel about that book being in American classrooms and kids learning about the Civil War through your writings? I'd worry about the American educational system. Um, no, look, I'm, I'm delighted. I mean, um, I guess my only uh, concern about it is that I researched that book. It's really 15 years ago now. Uh, and it is essentially a journalistic book. It's a snapshot of a moment in time. Um, and I, I hope that when teachers are using it, they're, they're pointing that out. I, I really can't say that things are still the same today. I think, you know, in some ways they are. Um, but this is really um, a, a moment in time in the mid-1990s when I actually think uh, racial tension and um, uh, ang a certain kind of anger was a little sharper than it is now. So uh, the militia movement had just emerged. This was around the time of Timothy McVeigh's bombing of, uh, uh, in Oklahoma. Um, I think historians will look back at this. Uh, there was a lot in the press at the time about angry white males. Well, we still have angry white males. But I think um, uh, things were a little hotter uh, than in, as regards some of the things I talk about in that book. Um, so I think if I were to report it today, uh, I might find a, a very different picture. Uh, also in ways I really didn't even address in the book. I mean, I still uh, visit the South often. Uh, one very obvious change, it was just beginning when I was reporting this book, huge upsurge in the Hispanic population, also the Asian population. The South itself, uh, quite aside from the issues I address in the book, has really changed a great deal. So what it means to be a Southerner, I think, is, is really changing. The demographics are changing. So that would be my one sort of um, cautionary note as you read it in the classroom. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Tony. It was yeah. a great presentation. I was just curious, um, as the war progressed, uh, Jesse James and Frank James, they grabbed, uh, I think, some of the women from the James farm, and also uh, Bloody Bill Anderson, who was a, a rebel, and they put them all in a dilapidated building, which later collapsed, and that kind of, um, you know, incensed some of these uh, guerrillas into further violence. Mm -hmm. And my question was, um, you know, I think that um, Brown was, you know, on the right track, but he was also very violent. Yeah. Why do you think so much violence came out of uh, Missouri and Kansas? Huh. All right. That's um, not where I thought that question was going. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, uh, this book was a real education for me because I think people outside of Missouri and Kansas don't realize there was this low-grade guerrilla war in progress well before the Civil War starts. And then, of course, during the Civil War, uh, it continues with these horrible raids and Quantrill and et cetera. Gee, I'm not, I'm not sure how to answer that, except that it was the frontier in that day. It was quite lawless. Uh, many of the settlers went there for political reasons. Uh, this was really a proxy war for the whole nation before the Civil War, so that you had, um, you know, tr uh, militiamen from, uh, you know, Alabama uh, riding up to Kansas, you know, under the flag, you know, the white race shall be supreme. And you had people like Brown coming from the North, who obviously had very strong abolitionist beliefs. So I think it drew a very politicized group of settlers, and because there wasn't really much governmental control, that made for a very, uh, you know, bloody kind of guerrilla atmosphere. I guess that would be my short, not very informed answer. Yeah. Oh, come on, you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you, and I can repeat it. Yeah, right. How is the Civil War playing out today in our political environment? I kind of wish we heard more about it, frankly. Um, you know, with the 150th uh, anniversary, it seems like a good time to revisit some of these big issues. Um, I think uh, President Obama, understandably for political reasons perhaps, doesn't, you know, want to talk about these Issues, I, I, I don't know. It struck me when, uh, some of you may recall back in the fall, he gave a talk in Osawatomie, Kansas, which was um, uh, Brown's, the site of Brown's sort of most famous fight in bleeding Kansas. Um, but Theodore Roosevelt came there 50 years later to dedicate a park to Brown and gave this speech that's regarded as a big policy speech that I've forgotten, the new frontier, the new something. And Obama wanted to evoke that. And nowhere in any of his speech or in any of the coverage did anybody mention the, the John Brown and Civil War legacy. So um, I think there'd be, you know, room for more of it. I think the celebrations are, I wouldn't even call them celebrations, um, uh, much more muted than, say, when I was a kid in the early 1960s during the centennial, although that was also... Um, very complicated by the emergence of the civil rights movement um, and ultimately became about these big issues. This one is, a, I think, a more solemn occasion when I go to Richmond and other places where they're making a big deal uh, about uh, the 150th anniversary. Uh, it, it, it's not a celebration. It's a solemn, uh, the role of women, African-Americans, other groups much more integrated into the story than, again, during the centennial I don't know if that's really answering your question. I mean, I, you know, one reason I, I wanted to write Confederates in the Attic is I think the fundamental issues at stake in the war are still with us and, and largely unresolved. I mean, race being the obvious one, uh, states' rights kind of comes and goes, but it's certainly still there. Um, and just really whether we're one country. Uh, and it's not obviously, you know, lacks the uh, sort of moral clarity and... Uh, a drama of the Civil War, but I think we're still grappling with all those issues today. So to me, it remains, um, uh, you know, hugely relevant. And I, I try and 
believe that about all history, but um, I think this one more so than uh, than the most episodes in our history. Uh, yeah, on the left. Thank you, Tony. Um, if you could just elaborate on that. You started off by, in your talk, talking about all the shared cultural attributes the United States shared 150 years ago. So after 150 years of time, and there's still these divisions that you just spoke of, what is the what insight or lessons might this have for internal conflicts that we see around the world and, you know, Syria or Iraq, Afghanistan? Gosh, you guys that. ask Thank easy you. questions here. Uh, well, let me talk first about, I mean, um, you know, I don't want to make 1859, the brink of the Civil War, seem like today. You know, uh, hopefully we're not on the brink of, you know, bloody Civil War, but there are times when I read the paper, turn on the TV, where I hear eerie echoes, this uh, uh, two sides really talking past each other, uh, this total refusal to compromise, and not just refusal to compromise, uh, a view that compromise is wicked. And that was John Brown's view, uh, and also that of Southern uh, fire eaters who didn't want to, uh, wanted constantly to expand slavery rather than, you know, in any way limit it. Uh, and sometimes I hear, you know, echoes of that. I think the dialogue has uh, at times gotten dangerously reminiscent of that, uh, of that era. And I think words have consequences. Boy, in terms of the, the, the global um, context, I, I'm a little wary of drawing generalizations. I guess uh, as a journalist and now a sort of whatever I am, historian of uh, wannabe historian, I feel like you always have to look at things in the specific context of their times and situation and drawing a, an analogy between, you know, uh, here in the Middle East or whatever is uh, is a little uh, dicey. But I think it reminds us um, that conflict isn't, you know, when we look at I covered Bosnia and the Middle East and all these other places where typically you had an ethnic or religious uh, difference that, you know, fed these conflicts. And that's, that really isn't what this conflict was about. Again, Americans were not homogenous, but, you know, compared to today, you know, pretty much so. Uh, most were farmers, overwhelmingly white, uh, um, you know, overwhelmingly Protestant and Catholic. I mean, it just wasn't um, uh, nearly as diverse as it is today, yet they, you know, killed each other savagely. Um, and what I kind of came away with uh, researching this book is that, you know, slavery was really this just seething, unresolved issue right from the start. Someone mentioned earlier, or I was talking with someone, you know, where does the Civil War begin? You know, is it Kansas? Is it Harper's Ferry? Is it Fort Sumter? I would argue it's 1776. I mean, when you declare that uh, all men are created equal and have certain inalien unalienable rights except for 20% of the population that's in chains. So, you know, that contradiction is built right into the fabric of this nation's founding. So while it comes to a head in the Civil War, it's there all through. We really were effectively a slave nation, uh, you know, uh, from its founding till um, the end of the Civil War. And, um, you know, I think this, you know, we think of the South as this nation apart, you know, again, this sort of gone with the wind image. This was, you know, the whole nation was strongly complicit in this. Um, you know, the textile mills in Massachusetts, where I live now, 
one of their biggest products was what was called Negro cloth, which was cheap clothes for the slave market. Um, so I think we have to to recognize that that this is really all of our story. <laughs> um, and uh, and I don't think we've really fully confronted that. And I don't think I answered your question at all. But anyway. Yeah. Hi, Tony. It's great to have you here. Yeah. Um, I read that I believe in Confederates in the Attic. You wrote about you were a reporter in Northern Ireland as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, having studied there, as I was reading your book, I was struck by the correlations between Protestant loyalists and Confederate sympathizers in the South. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind maybe reflecting on that a little bit, some of the similarities between um, Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland, African Americans in this country, and right. kind of and searching for identity amongst Protestant loyalists and as well as uh, Confederates uh, here, sympathizers here. Right. Um, well, the, where I saw that strongest, yes, I was a foreign correspondent generally in sort of conflict areas, and one of them was uh, Northern Ireland. And without getting into all the history, I think the strongest similarity I saw was between the Orange Men um, in in Northern Ireland and uh, sort of diehard conf uh, defenders of the Confederacy. Uh, the first night I went to Northern Ireland each year, okay, so the British essentially defeat the Irish, help me out, 1690-something, Battle of Boyne, King Billy, whatever. So I arrived. 300 years later, and there are all these Protestants marching through Catholic neighborhoods uh, in Belfast, you know, banging drums and King Billy, King Billy, you know, as if this A happened yesterday, but also really rubbing it in their faces. And I felt a little of that when I encountered some of these diehard Confederates who would say, we're just honoring our heritage, we're just honoring our history, as they would, um, you know, drive around on uh, Martin Luther King's birthday with a rebel flag flying from the back of the truck. Um, uh, so in that sense, I saw a lot of similarity, this history that never died. It's still uh, very present. And actually that um, Ulsterman, uh, Northern Ireland, you know, that was a big line of immigration into this country, largely into the South. So I think some of that, I mean, someone like Andrew Jackson, I believe his background and many others, uh, would have been for this. So that's where I saw it uh, the strongest. Um, I mean, I could talk about the other things, but that did, in terms of memory, that's what really struck me. Uh, that's a, a, a good question, and actually, as many times as I've talked about this, never been asked. The question is really about how my Jewish heritage perhaps influenced uh, my perspective, particularly in this book. And I actually talk about it in the book. The book is sort of framed. One of the reasons I became a Civil War nerd in, in boyhood was that my great-grandfather, who was a, a, a Jewish immigrant from Russia, um, lived to be over 100, and I knew him as a boy. And uh, he shared with me this book of Civil War illustrations uh, that he had kept all those years and kind of drew me into the Civil War. I was too young at the time to think about it, and after my journey, I kind of reflect on it. Uh, why was it that this uh, penniless immigrant uh, who couldn't speak English, his, as far as I can tell, his first real purchase in America was this book of Civil War sketches. So I reflect in the book about how um, the Civil War is sort of part of becoming American, that learning this story 
is, is not just about you who have a, a personal connection to this story, you know, because most Americans actually, particularly in the North, don't have a blood tie to this. So I'm guessing many in this room are, like myself, um, descended from immigrants who came after the Civil War, but that becoming engrossed in this story is uh, sort of part of understanding America and becoming part of it. Um, how it affected me, uh, I think it gave me uh, just a little more of an outsider view. Um, yeah, I haven't really reflected on this. Um, I felt lucky doing this book. Also, I grew up in the sort of Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., which isn't really north or south. It has kind of elements of both. And perhaps my, my Judaism added to that. I feel like I didn't have a pony in this race. I mean, I have my personal views, but I don't have a sort of allegiance north or south uh, no blood tie, that in a way that gave me a, a certain freedom, one, to speak to all sides, uh, but also to not come into it with a strong preconceived uh, opinion. Maybe I, I like to think it, uh, it gave me a little kind of freedom. I, I don't know if that answers the question. Um, you know, in a weird way, although I'm a secular Jew, I'm, I'm really not observant, um, it's somehow come up in all my books. So I think we're all more influenced by our heritage than, you know, even we recognize sometimes. Uh, I did one book on the Middle East, and there it was kind of, well, there were obvious ties, particularly when I was in Israel or Palestine. Uh, but even in my other books, somehow, uh, I think uh, in different ways in each book, it, it influences you a little bit, but I think, um, again, it was a little the way I enjoyed reporting from Northern Ireland because I didn't have a stake in that. It was Protestants and Catholics killing each other. Um, I could kind of stand back and, you know, not, no one's objective, but you know what I mean? It, it kind of gave me a, a, a little distance, a little outsider perspective, which I think can be um, valuable sometimes. Yeah. Hi, I just actually uh, have a question about your research. In history, as young students in high school, we learn, you know, kind of the one side of history, um, mainly being Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves and then always wanted freedom for the slaves. But when we, you know, go to college, we start learning that it kind of was a, it had to happen for the country more than he, he, the fact that he wanted it. In your research, uh, what was there, was there one thing that came up and you were just like, wow, I got a different perspective or, a different view of history. Right. Um, there were a lot of things specific to John Brown's story that surprised me. And again, as you know, perhaps I indicated in my talk, you know, that he's not the man I think many of us imagine. But I think more broadly, and again, I, I sort of made reference to this in the talk, um, you know, I, I kind of did a refresher course on early American history because I really wanted to explain how we got to this point, not just tell the story of 1859. So I kind of marched through the... Missouri Compromise and all those things you guys are studying in History One, um, but in you know more depth and talk to historians. And I thought I knew that period, but again, I guess I come back to this: um, how much slavery or defense of slavery was interwoven into pre-Civil War society. I'll just give you one example. Um, it wasn't until 1852 um, that we even had a non-slaveholder. Um, on one of the major party, you know, that one of the major party tickets did not have a slaveholder on it. Um, 
you know, this really uh, is not just a southern thing. You know, it's um, so and the power of the South over and over again and seeing the way in which it was really steering the nation. And to the point where in the 1850s, again, contrary to the Gone with the Wind view, where it's sort of this sad society that's on the verge of extinction kind of view, it's actually the opposite. Um, uh, slaveholders and their representatives in Congress are, are getting up and urging the country to invade Cuba and Central America so that they will have more lands to plant and enslave. And then we, we even invade or um, pro-slavery partisans invade Cuba. Another one invades uh, Nicaragua um, uh, and installs slavery, which had been outlawed there 30 years before in the U.S., Government recognizes this guy. He just sort of makes himself dictator. So I think we have a really skewed view of, you know, what what was happening in this this country that somehow, again, this north marching towards industry and power and this, you know, this fading away feudal society. It, it really wasn't like that. The South was a very dynamic and powerful uh, part of this country right up. And that's really why they get out of the nation. That's why they secede. They realize they can no longer have that power. Um, and they realize, well, let's get out while we can, because, uh, you know, now the, the, deck, the deck is going to be stacked, stacked against us. I thought I would ask, you've mentioned Gone with the Wind a few times, uh, obviously a very influential film when it comes to collective memory. Uh, you know, your thoughts on how TV and film depictions of the war, you know, positively or negatively have shaped how we, we view the conflict? Yeah. Uh, yeah, a question about, you know, movie and film. And I mean, I don't think with the Civil War there's anything that comes close to Gone with the Wind, certainly for Americans and not just Americans, globally of a certain age. As I talk about Confederates in the Attic, one of the weird things is you go to a reenactment and there's always twice as many Confederates as Union because everyone wants to play a Southerner. Uh, and part of that is the costume. You know, if you're dressing as a Northerner, you kind of wear blue and you have a decent uniform, it's, you're kind of boring in uniform and, and if you and you win. Uh, if you play a southerner, you can kind of, your hair can be any which way, and, but, and, and uh, you're the underdog. But I think, again, it's also gone with the wind. So I would meet reenactors from Australia and Japan and all over the world who were playing rebels. Um, so there's nothing quite like gone with the wind, but I'd mention a few others. I think Glory um, had a huge impact. Uh, on consciousness of African-American involvement in this war, which I think was obviously known to scholars, but I don't think the general public realized um, that really uh, uh, black troops uh, swung the, the military balance to a great degree in this war, and also just the wonderful personal stories in that movie. Uh, I don't know, you know, North and South. I don't think the Civil War has been particularly well served by film, to tell you the truth. Uh, other than glory, I like Ride with the Devil. Someone asked about guerrilla warfare in Missouri and Kansas. Uh, that's a movie I like. I don't know. What are some other good examples? I think most of them are bad. Um, so I, I'm not sure that other than Gone with the Wind, um, uh, movies have had the impact on, on memory of the Civil War the way they have on some other events. For instance, Pocahontas. Uh, I bet if I were to ask a, you know students here, Many of them would uh, reflect a view of Pocahontas that was shaped by Disney 
And I'm here to tell you she wasn't some kind of vaguely hot Barbie doll. She was 10. Um, and, and she didn't have anything going with John Smith. If she had, it would have been kind of weird. And that, you know, uh, there's this whole fiction um, that largely comes from that and other movies. So um, um, I don't know. But maybe I'm forgetting some movies that have had a big impact. Kind of look like we're, yeah, yeah. Advice for student writers, uh, marry well. Uh, you're going to be poor. Uh, no. Um, uh, I don't know that I would have advice for people interested in writing history that would be any different from advice I'd give to write. My wife's also a writer, so, you know, I think we talk about this a lot. Uh, I think the most important thing that's going to sound kind of banal is actually just to write. Uh, I think a lot of people have a very romantic image of writing that somehow... Uh, you know, it's about getting your aura in the right place and ingesting just the right amount of caffeine or nicotine, whatever your drug of choice is and, you know, how you lay out your pencils or something. And then the words just come bursting out. You know, writing, uh, you know, I know a lot of writers, and I think almost all of them would say it's really pretty much like any job. It's about getting your butt in the seat for eight hours or more a day and just doing it. And the more you do it, the better you get. Um, so I know, so I would say keep a journal. I mean, not just your classroom assignments, which is a specific kind of writing, but if you want to do another kind of writing, just get in the habit of writing every day, even if it's 15 minutes at your laptop at the end of the day, banging out a diary or something, that's, that's useful. Something other than tweets and Facebook stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that's important. I'll make this my last comment because I can see people fleeing. Um, is, uh, you know, I do worry a bit today because we can get so much through our computers that it's easy to almost talk yourself out of going anyplace, you know, and it applies to archival research. I can, you know, a lot of these archives have been digitized. You always find more if you go in my case, to the places where the history happened. You've got to use the archive of the feed. You've got to talk to people. So I know, you know, you can look at Google Earth. You can, you know, there are a million ways you can find out about things. Uh, you still got to get out there and see it with your own eyes and talk to people. So uh, don't be seduced by your, your computer screens. Anyway, on that note, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm not going away, so happy to talk to you individually. But thanks for listening. Thank you, everybody, for coming. We're going to move to the table outside for a book signing. We appreciate it. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.